Mental health and wellness are crucial aspects of well-being. Their understanding and acceptance are vital for the progress of society. In a cultural context, mental health is often shrouded in stigma and misunderstanding, leading to a lack of proper support and care for those affected. Heal Your Mind with Tracy Cotson is a platform for candid conversations that enlighten and enrich our understanding of mental health and wellness. Join us as we demystify, destigmatize, prioritize, and shine a light on mental health and healing. Heal Your Mind podcast with Tracy Cotson is hosted by Mental Wellness Initiative and supported by the Ford Foundation. Good day, everyone. Thank you for joining me, Tracy Cotson, as we discuss the relationship between mental health and gender-based violence. Today we have in studio Hazel Namponya from the Mental Wellness Initiative and Kavya Swaminathan from Tears Foundation. Good morning, ladies. Morning, morning. Tracy. Kavya, can you tell us a little bit about the work of Tears Foundation, how it relates to gender-based violence and what are the mental wellness support initiatives that you run in that context? Okay, so the TS Foundation provides an information and support-based service to survivors of gender-based violence and sexual abuse. And what that means is that our founder, Mara Glenny, who started TS, she is a survivor of intimate partner violence herself. And many years ago, about 20 years ago, when she decided to report her perpetrator, she walked into a police station on a Friday afternoon and they turned her away. They mm-hmm. said, there is a shift change. I'm so sorry, we can't help you right now. Can you please come back on Monday? To this day, she has not reported that man. Mm. She left the police station that day with this idea that no one was able to help me, but also they didn't tell me what I could do and the steps I could take. So in that, I think in those moments in her brain, tears was formed. She wanted a safe place, an informational support system where people can get access to the information. So what we do is how we try to bridge that gap. When you are in a traumatic situation, when you are in an abusive situation or something really bad has just happened to you, you actually don't have the structures in South Africa to tell us where to go to get help. We don't know what the processes are. We don't educate people on what it's like to open a police case or should I go to a hospital first? So stuff like that. That's where we try to step in. So our main aim is to provide our clients or to provide the people who contact us with all the information they need in order to make an informed decision in their own healing. Because you know what? Everyone's situation is different. I don't get the right to tell you what to do when something so horrible has just happened to you. You need to be able to make those choices for yourself. Mm. We give back authority and ownership of your own body, of your own situation to our clients. So we give them all the information, all the steps, so then they can evaluate what they do. Because honestly, not everyone wants to open a police case. Not everyone feels comfortable going through their stories in that kind of environment. So then we're like, okay, cool. Then medical takes precedent. Let's Mm. get you to your nearest hospital. This is what the kind of examinations they're going to do. This is the kind of questions they're going to ask you. And we walk them through that. On top of that, we also focus on containment and referral. So what that means is that when people call us, we always say we're either the first place they reached out to or the last. So first place as in you were just sexually assaulted, for example, and you do a quick Google search on what the support systems are. Our name comes up. You give us a call. We walk you through the entire process. Last place you called is because you tried to open up to friends and family and they didn't quite really get it. Or you went to a police station to report the case and they weren't super supportive. So now you're like, okay, this is my last Hail Mary tell me what I can do. So either the first or the last place. And 
when you call us in that situation, it's about containing your situation. We don't provide services ourselves. So I'm not a counselor. My staff are not counselors on the back, on the counselors on the back end of the phone, but we are trained in the mental health profession. We will do what we refer to as psychological first aid. We help you calm you down. We listen to your story. We believe what you're saying and we provide you with that support. However, I am going to ask you some tough questions. Because I need that information in order to best assist you. And then we can refer you on to the person who can help you after that, whether it is counseling, whether it is medical, whether it is legal, whether it's police. We try to take a really holistic approach to gender-based violence and sexual assault because we understand that there is a bigger picture. And everyone's story is unique. How they choose to heal is unique. How they respond to trauma is unique. And we try to assist our clients based on what they need, not just a formulaic script of what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. So you said holistic, and that's great because it then centralizes services to an extent. So people mm. don't necessarily have to go to 10 different places to get advice or guidance. Mm. They can come to one place where it's centralized. Yeah, and I think that again ties into this idea is that we don't know where to go, right? Right. And there are a lot of steps. So for example, you have someone who is in a domestic violence situation. So let's say you have a woman who is, has an abusive partner. She wants to leave. But what are the steps to leaving in that, right? They would be reporting to the police. They would be getting a protection order, which is legal based. You also have to ask questions like, do you have family that can support you? Do you have a place to go if you leave him? Because a lot of the times, I think a big thing that we have to remember in this entire conversation is abuse is really complicated. And it's really easy to stand on the outside and make judgment calls or say, oh, why don't you just leave him? Or why didn't you do this? Or you, mm. it's very easy to make those calls when it's not your lived reality, when it's not you going through it. There are a lot of factors, reasons why people stay, why people don't leave, why people do what they do. Mm. And I think it's being conscious of that and understanding that and addressing all of that. Mm. Thank you. I think that was a really comprehensive coverage of what and I think if if we stopped right now, at least we would have given people a really good sense yeah. of where they can get quite a comprehensive helping process. So Hazel, I want to come to you as the editor-in-chief of Collective Action magazine. And for our listeners who don't know what that is, it is South Africa's first multimedia digital publication, which focuses exclusively on gender-based violence. Hazel, you've published three editions of the magazine thus far. And with seven countries participating now, we're getting quite a broad sense of what is happening, particularly in Africa, in the GBV response. Having looked at what now amounts to dozens of articles and inputs into that magazine, what would you distill the relationship between gender-based violence and mental health to be? What are you seeing so from the myriad of articles and conversations we've had with the victims, people in the civil society, there's a lack of recognition that the two are interlinked. There's a disconnection in terms of how we approach gender-based violence and mental health. It always seems to be a separate issue. A lot of victims that encounter gender-based violence are always neglected. So they've gone through the whole process. They've had the encounter and they're left and neglected. There's no follow-up. There's no conversations around mental health and taking them through the process of healing. Healing is not a part of the journey of many victims. That part is completely ignored. And that is the biggest stumbling block um, I've seen. In addition to that, there are not so many interventions that actually deal with the trauma side of things, especially from an African perspective. 
recently we conducted a research to dis, uh, find out what healing modalities are available from an African perspective that suit the geolocation and culture. And it was very stunning that not a lot of interventions speak to the African culture because they're not accessible, they're not understandable, they're not um, complementary to the norms and the cultures of that place. There's a lot of discrepancy in terms of healing. So there's a big gap between the trauma and the healing. And that gap needs to be closed up. Mm. That is the biggest barrier in terms of connecting the two that we have seen mm. coming through the magazine. Mm. Yeah. You know, I've actually seen that research. And if I remember correctly, it's respondents indicated that counseling was still their favored or, and most effective methodology for healing. But those same respondents indicated that counseling was available in less than 60% of the communities that they come from. And when we speak to the African perspective, we also asked a question in that research about traditional healers and complementary healing modalities. And again, there was an interest in these, and some people had said that they were quite effective, but they're not available in these communities. Particularly around traditional healing, there was quite a division, Hazel, if you'll recall, mm. that it was almost 50-50 where people said, I don't know anything about this, or I don't think it works. And I don't know if it's safe. So mm. there's a real lack of information mm. around what does it actually mean to see um, traditional healers or go for complementary therapies, and they're not available. That's sort mm. of a huge part of what came out of that. Mm. I think from a cultural perspective, and specifically African, we struggle with culture clash. Mm. You spoke about counseling. And counseling is available in various forms. So there's the traditional, um, psych going to see the psychologist or psychiatrist. And there's also the faith-based counseling, mm -hmm. which is more accessible actually to communities. Then you have the cultural part of Sangomas and tradition. And a lot mm -hmm. of our communities, because of the colonial culture that comes with Christianity or a religion, clashes with our indigenous knowledge. And a lot of people mm -hmm. find themselves stuck between mm. the two, the two don't talk to each other. Mm. Um, and the, that creates more division within the community, um, within the victims themselves. So you don't know, if I go to a traditional healer, what will my family say? What will my faith say? If I mm. go to the church, what will... So there's a lot of division alone just mm. from that perspective yeah. Yeah, when it comes to healing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I've mm. heard similar things where people have been kicked out of their church because they've engaged in some traditional practices that were rejected yes. by their, their practicing faith group. And just to jump in on that, mm. I think it's also this idea is that there is a societal pressure and we put pressure on what we consider is the right answer, right? Mm -hmm. So we talk about there's this idea of Western is correct. It's come from overseas. It's European. It's come from America. It must be the right way, which also puts a lot of pressure on people that I have to do this in order to get better or I have this is the only way that my problems will be solved or my problems will be addressed, which is also, again, it just stirs up the conflict and this clashing. I mean, we have to admit that South Africa is a melting pot of a lot of things. And the mm -hmm. only way we can address that is by looking at the bigger picture. Kavya, mm -hmm. do you think, and I'm just talking to your capacity as a mm. clinical and counseling psychologist, we speak about mental health after the trauma, right? We talk mm. about healing, trauma recovery, all, all that sort of things. What is your perspective on it as a causative factor in gender-based violence? Definitely. So I think a lot of the times people see healing as something very linear, right? So something 
happens to you, you go for some sort of treatment and then you get better and you're supposed to get better in a straight line because you're doing the sessions, you're doing your homework, you're talking to the therapist, but actually healing is all over the place. You can have three really good days and then you could have a month of really shitty days. Mm. You could have three years of good productive development like everything can be growing great from you but one person can slam a door a little bit too loud in just a really similar way and you can be totally triggered and that can be like six months back two years back and I think that people on this journey one we need to remember to be nicer to them in the sense that we need to have more compassion but also they need to be nicer on themselves people put a lot of pressure on themselves in this journey as well as an idea of causation we see it all the time. When you don't deal with what has happened to you, there are so many roadblocks that get built. I can only think in my own experience as working at Tears is so many people will call us and be like, I was assaulted when I was 21, for example. I'm 37. I've never been in a successful relationship. And I don't know why. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, they don't know why. Because sometimes you're like, okay, something happened to me when I was seven. Someone touched me inappropriately but now I'm 33 and I can't have a relationship. And a lot of people don't put that together. And that can cause issues. You have people who have been like, I fight with every boyfriend I've ever had and I don't know why. I don't know why. And we get gents as well who say is that I have an anger inside of me. I don't know where it comes from. But when I'm fighting with my girlfriend, sometimes I just want to hit her. I don't want to. I know I'm not supposed to. And when we don't deal with our traumas, when we don't We have to accept it into ourselves as something that has happened to us Mm. and then learn to move with it. So we always say that your trauma doesn't get bigger or smaller, but you grow around your trauma. You learn to know yourself, your triggers, your own limitations, and you then grow around it and it feels smaller. It doesn't get smaller. Mm. It just feels smaller to you because honestly, you're a bigger, better person now. Yeah, because you get yeah. you get bigger than the monsters yeah. and, and, the, and they kind of seem smaller. I, mm. I, I so absolutely get that. I think you were alluding to post-trauma growth mm. when you just spoke now and how when we integrate trauma, and it's very hard to hear this when you're in the throes of the pain, mm. so I'm going to say it gently. But when you've done some of the healing work and you've integrated that trauma, you recognize that there were actually gifts within it strengths that you developed within it, endurances, resiliences. Mm. And I'm saying it gently because I want to be clear that I'm not saying, you know, let's go court trauma so that we can all develop strengths and resiliences. It's things that just happen to us. Mm. But it's inadvertently, it does grow and strengthen and develop you as a person. Mm. And that is called post-trauma growth. Mm. So I'm not manufacturing this. Mm -hmm. It's a a real thing. And part of the recognition of that is then having gone through that integration process. So when we speak about mental wellness and trauma, what I'm hearing in between the lines of what you're saying and my own take on it is that if we don't engage the healing work, whether what happened was 10 years ago, last week, 30 years ago, and whatever age you were at the time, if we don't engage the process of healing, that trauma continues to live on in your relationships, in the way you make decisions and in the way you show up in the world. The second thing of what I'm then suggesting is, are we able to draw a straight line between unresolved trauma and becoming abusive yourself 
not necessarily in a genderized way, but, you know, increased levels of aggression in just increased levels of fighting with people, of not having peace in your home mm. and you being the aggressor on that because you're sitting overflowing with pain that have, mm. that has not been resolved. I think the easiest way to distill that is hurt people hurt, hurt people. people. Mm-hmm. And that's it's what it boils down to. And that's why we refer to it as a cycle of abuse, right? right. And it can happen so inadvertently. So, for example... If you just grow up in a household where mum and dad fight with fists, they never lay a hand on you, but mum and dad fight with fists. That is what you grow up believing relationships look like. That it's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. That is your worldview. Mum and dad are your first like introduction to the world and they have painted that picture. When mum and dad are mad, words get thrown around, really nasty words. Sometimes they hit each other. And then that's what's been painted for you. Mm. And the thing is, if mom and dad, then how they work through that is the next day everything's fine. That's also painted for you. So little kid, girl or guy, this is how they grow up. So a little girl can grow up believing is that that's the kind of relationship I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. We need that passion and passion needs to look like violence. And that's what she looks for in guys when she grows up. Same thing with a gent. Little boy grows up believing that. I'm disciplining my wife. I'm disciplining my girlfriend. This is how we're supposed to resolve our conflict. And that's what continues because, hey, that little boy is going to grow up, be a man, have a kid with someone. And that's the picture he's going to paint. And that's why we always say education. Like everything that we're talking about boils down this to this idea that we are not educating people enough. We're not talking about these issues. We're not creating a wider lens because we do sanitize these topics. Like, because let's be real, this is not something everyone wants to sit around Mm. a dinner table and talk about. Like, no one opens a conversation about, hey, did you hear about the court case that's going on about the rapist? Like, no one's doing that because no one wants to. (laughs) Mm. Like, life has been depressing enough. So we try to look at the thing. But in this over sanitization, we have sensationalized acts and we kind of brush past it. I think a lot of times we talk around trauma and we talk around mental health. And there's still so much stigma and connotation attached to these topics. I mean, you tell someone that you have a weekly appointment with a with a psychologist and they're like, ooh, cuckoo. <laughs> Judgment. Yes. Yeah. And like, that's why I love now when people talk about their therapist, they're like, that's what my therapist said. <laughs> and I think that we kind of have to be a little bit blasé and just like pop it into conversations and try to normalize these conversations. Mm. And it's this idea is that you need to be talking about because we're talking about GBV and sexual abuse is so much a part of that. You need to be talking to your kids about sex and not just your kids. You need to be talking to your guys, your friends about sex, how they talk about it and the kind of energy that they're putting out about it. Mm-hmm. And we need to be like stopping people and being like, actually, you can't say that. Yeah, <laughs> Actually, exactly. that's not OK. Exactly. It's that, that, that accountability between friends. Right. Yes. I need to call you out. When you're saying something that's actually not okay. And it's this idea that calling people out doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. I think we always say that when you're calling someone out, they are wrong and you are right. And you are like standing on a higher moral judgmental ground. But like sometimes people just don't know. 
it boils mm-hmm. like you are what you are exposed to yeah. so if you have always had friends or like guys if you went to an all guys school and you made shitty jokes about sex and locker room talk and all that nonsense that people talk about and now you come to university and now you have girls for the first time and you mm-hmm. you're making girlfriends i'm not even saying you're romantically attached to them you're just being around girls and having conversations with this feminine element to it if they call you out and say actually that kind of joke doesn't sit well with me mm-hmm. or actually you shouldn't be saying that kind of shit mm-hmm. it's not a bad thing inherently Mm -hmm. i'm not saying that you're a trashy person Mm -hmm. a little bit like (laughs) not necessarily i'm saying you're doing a really trashy thing and when i'm calling you out i'm just educating you on a different perspective that you Mm -hmm. might not have had so i just want to add on what Mm. you um you're talking about hurt people hurt people i think i speak i like speaking from an african perspective (laughs) because it's a huge discrepancy Mm. and when it comes to knowledge um and understanding there is no language or the language around mental health and gender-based mm. violence is very primitive from African context, from, from our homes. Like you're saying, a child sees mom hitting mom and tomorrow they, they're okay and that's what's normal. Nobody talks about it. There is no language for it. One of the things that happened when we did our research, I'll, I'll keep going back to our research, we asked our participants what the word gender-based violence is in their native language and there isn't. There isn't. Mm. All and no gender-based violence is an, is, is a, some form of expression. Mm. It could be domestic, it could be physical, it could be sexual, but not holistically. Mm. There is no language for mental health and wellness. And I think this is, these conversations are crucial because we need to start building that vocabulary yeah. to have the conversations around and build the vocabulary. Yeah, and it's not just gender-based violence. Mm-hmm. Like it's asking people, how do you in your own vernacular describe or articulate the fact that you're depressed? Mm. Right. I mean, I think about it in my own languages. I, I actually don't know like what equates to that deep-seated mm-hmm. depression or mm-hmm. how do I explain my anxiety? Mm-hmm. And it's already this issue of like, how do you explain anxiety to someone who doesn't have anxiety? Like that's hard enough. Mm-hmm. Yes. But now you have to do it in a language where these words are not native. We don't talk about it. Absolutely. And it's like barrier after barrier. And mm-hmm. you just, it's this idea of accessibility. I don't have access to the resources so if i don't have access where am i going for help Mm. like how do i even start Mm. Mm. because a lot of the feelings like you spoke Mm. about depression anxiety they're usually relegated to some supernatural phenomenal Mm. or demonized or something because of that lack (laughs) and it's this idea that like depression Mm. is not sadness Mm -hmm. yes it's elements of sadness but how do I come to you Mm -hmm. when I don't have the words even to talk about it and like our organization tries to be as inclusive as possible our staff tries to speak as many languages but I have a um, colleague she speaks Afrikaans and I once asked her like when you we have these conversations can you think about gender-based violence in Afrikaans and she's like no honestly when I'm writing an article and stuff like that it comes to me in English Mm. like I know kind of the words and stuff but like it comes to me in English because that's that's also the space these conversations are happening Mm. in and we don't realize that how isolating that is to someone yes because if you're talking to someone who is from a township or in the more rural parts like i talk to people i have clients who call me in from the middle of nowhere in the free state where they're like three sheep like three like farms with like five sheep on them Mm. like they don't have the vernacular they don't have how to articulate what's happening and the thing is when you can't even start talking about your Mm -hmm. issue Mm -hmm. by the time it gets to someone like me so much has happened so much trauma has happened 
And I think it's also this idea that we relegate gender-based violence to physical, right? Physical mm-hmm. and sexual. Mm-hmm. And also when we say sexual, I mean it physically, right? right. We don't try to think about the emotional aspect of, of gender-based violence or the financial aspect or the psychological aspect. Mm-hmm. I mean, like if you have a partner, male or female, who wants to know where you are all the time, mm-hmm. that is controlling and that mm-hmm. is a form of emotional abuse and emotional coercion. And it's also this idea of talking about the difference, right? So you have to be aware of context. We live in South Africa. Anything could happen. You could get hijacked on your way in the car. You could get mugged while walking down the street. So it's drawing the line about my partner sent me asked me to send a message when I arrive at places versus he wants to know where I am every mm-hmm. second of mm-hmm. the day. Mm-hmm. And it's just being aware. It's contextualizing how we talk about these things and being aware of the context when we talk mm-hmm. about it. That just affects it. It's such a complicated yes. thing. So many inter- yeah. intersectionalities. Yes. And that's exactly. why we say it's it. holistic. You yeah. need Absolutely. to need to look at the bigger picture. Mm. You know, I must admit, I've never thought of the fact that most of these conversations happen in English as being a massively marginalizing <laughs> factor. Yes. I'm actually sitting here in a little bit of, geez, how did I, how did we not know this? Mm-hmm. Um and yet it's obvious when you think about it, right? Because people who don't speak English are hugely being left out of the conversation. And the language for it in indigenous languages is so limited. So, so when we, when we speak about why people can't speak about stuff, stigma also comes in there and plays a huge role. In the language that Hazel keeps referencing it, and so do I, because we're actually so excited about what was found there. Mm. So we, we keep talking about this. It's because it's va- it validated mm. things that we were suspicious of. Yeah. And now we actually have the evidence for it. And one of those pieces of evidence, 70% of respondents on our survey said that stigma or fear of being judged by others is the biggest obstacle mm-hmm. to, to accessing help. So now you don't have the language for it. The nearest clinic is however many kilometers away from your house. You're going to be judged and treated mm. oddly by your neighbors yeah. and everyone else when you say, I'm, I'm going for help. I'm going to see a therapist. Let's unpack a little bit around mm. this idea of stigma. What is inside that container? If it was a box named stigma and we opened the lid, what would we find inside? Shame. <laughs> I think that's the, the the first thing you see. There is so much shame associated right. with sexual and physical violence mm-hmm. and domestic yeah. violence in general. So what do you think the shame is rooted in? A lot. <laughs> I think so much societal norms that we have perpetuated over and over again. So the big daddy umbrella to all of that is the patriarchy. Yeah. Mm. For so long, you have told one gender, you mm-hmm. have told women all around the world, not just in South Africa, mm-hmm. that men are better than them. Right. That their men are just valued higher than you, mm-hmm. whether it's their opinion, whether it's the content they create, whether it's anything that they do. We have told women and little girls that boys are better Mm -hmm. and that's not going to go away. And we have created institutions that have just perpetuated that in marriage vows. We promise to obey our husbands and we do, we've just, it's societal all around. Arranged marriages were created long ago in medieval days in order to keep wealth in -hmm. families. Like that's honestly why arranged marriages were created. It was to save only girl children. So wealth can remain in families. (laughs) Like it's really Mm -hmm. messed up. 
And we have like perpetuated all of these things. I was, by the way, that women were not entitled to. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I was having a conversation with someone about Lebola the other day, and they were talking about their sister and all of this stuff. And he literally told her not to stress about it because you're not seeing the money anyway. And I'm like, that's so sad. And I think about dowries and all of this stuff, and I'm like, we didn't get like women don't see any of that. There are these big negotiations happening about their worth. You're talking about how educated they are and how mm-hmm. amazing they are but they don't get any money mm-hmm. and I'm like no this is honestly whatsoever for them yeah. yes mm-hmm. and like that is so cruel like yeah. it's so cruel yeah. and I'm laughing about it now because honestly if I think about it too hard You'll I will cry, cry. Yes. yeah I get that so that's the like I said the big daddy umbrella that mm-hmm. like kind of hangs over everyone and in that we've just associated a breakdown in a relationship as to a lack of trying, right? Mm. And we blame women and we constantly have these conversations. Actually, there's no winning because if you don't leave them, you get criticized on why you haven't left, why you didn't leave earlier, why did you let it go on for so long? And if you do leave, why didn't you try a little harder? And why don't you just work on it a little bit so much? And what about the children? And oh, what about the Mm -hmm. children? I'm like, what image are we painting for kids to stay in toxic situations? When sometimes leaving is so much healthier. And sometimes I'm like, you have to be a little bit selfish. Mm. And the thing is, you can't pour from an empty cup. Absolutely. You can't protect your children. But at the same time that I'm saying this, I understand why you stay for the kids. Mm. Because you know what? If If he is the breadwinner and hasn't let you work and he pays for your kids' health insurance and he is spiteful enough and abusive enough to say that I will cut the medical aid mm. for our kids if you leave mm. me. Which we've yes. all heard the stories yeah. of and they actually do happening. That. Yeah. And the thing is, sometimes when I'm talking to people about this, about like just my day at work, like a really shitty thing, I'll mention something in passing and people are like, that's not real. And I'm like, you'd be surprised. <laughs> yes, it's, tr- it's definitely real. <laughs> yeah. It's very yeah. real. And the thing is, at the end of the day, women are still to this day turned away from police stations when they go to report abuse. Can you imagine actually being subjected to that amount of abuse, gaining the courage and making that decision and walking into a place where someone is supposed to help you, Mm. if nothing else, listen to you. They say, actually, this is a domestic issue. You should go talk to your husband about it. I'm the having, same abuser. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, and you're like, what? Exactly. And you have family members. Like I know within my own culture, the Indian culture, divorce is still seen as something so shameful. Mm. And like they will let people stay in different houses, but you're not allowed to get divorced. <laughs> I mean, like they will let you live completely separate lives and they won't criticize you for anything. But they're like, you can't get a divorce. You can't put it on paper. What would the neighbors think? And I'm like... Gives shit. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, who, who gives who a cares? shit? Exactly. Like, should you not be more concerned that the person that you said is okay <laughs> that I married hits me? Yes, like, yeah, should you not be not more concerned. concerned about your daughter that your you've daughter. married off to someone who was who was not exactly. a good choice? So, woman's yes. life does not matter. Yeah. And that's honestly what it boils it down to Mm. is that you tell women every day that their opinion doesn't matter, that Mm -hmm. their lives don't matter. Mm -hmm. And so many people call us and say, will you care about me only when I'm dead? Mm -hmm. And honestly, time and time again, the media and society is showing that, yes, we care more about you once you're dead. Yeah, Mm -hmm. he'll be on the the, the news. We'll worry Mm -hmm. about your issue Mm -hmm. and we'll talk about it a lot. Go doorway and burn things. Yes. Two weeks later, we've forgotten about you. Move on to the next victim. (laughs) Because, you know what, until Mm -hmm. she dies, we're not going to care about it either. And it's so 
messed up. Yeah, absolutely. it is messed up. Thank you oh, for sanitizing the messed up because I, <laughs> yeah, I don't I, know if I can swear on no, the podcast. Like, let's, let's not. Let's not get too. When we talk about accessibility, yeah, <laughs> yeah um, no, I feel you. I feel you. Yeah. So just, I'm smiling because I. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, we're so passionate about this, and and I think there's such a sense of how aggravated we as professionals in the space become when we see that the system is dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. We understand the intersectionalities of the dysfunction, all of the different pieces, interpsychic, you know, to the victim, interpsychic to the perpetrator and how all of those things come together. So it can be overwhelming for us. Mm -hmm. And I think I, I particularly get really passionate about this. And shame for me is a really hot topic. Mm. And I will publicly thank Brene Brown for making shame something we talk about openly in her work, her research around shame and shame resilience. And now that we're chatting, I'm thinking, does the shame come from that we've been so beat down by patriarchal systems and structures that we feel inherently unworthy of being loved, valued, protected and then when someone takes advantage of us we literally have a combination of did I deserve that because I'm this lesser valued creature and also I could not protect myself and no one else will mm. so I feel like the, the concept of shame and this inherent sense of being less worthy and therefore if I open my mouth and ask for help the system of course the system is going to ignore me because mm. I'm a lesser worthy being and it's preempting that I'm going to ask for help. They'll chase me away. And then I just sit there with egg on my face, mm. having the fact that I'm a lesser being has now just been reinforced. Mm. Yeah. And anticipating that the system is going to treat you that way. So I think the system has not changed. The goalposts mm. haven't changed for us. Mm. I'll give you an example, Tracy. I was looking at this cartoon where... We had, from a leadership perspective, from a corporate leadership um, and gender equality, where we're moving the space that we're in, we had a startup line and it was um, about a hundred meter relay or, mm -hmm. or stretch. And you have, we had women and men on that same start line. Right. Now, in front of the women, you had washing basket, laundromat, the children, the fans, you know, the household. To, right till the start, to the, all of these to, obstacles, obst mm. all these obstacles in front of me, uh, right until the finish line. But where the men were, it was straight ahead. It was mm. all clear. Mm. So as much as we are in this, um, we are fighting or we are walking and advocating for gender equality. The system has not yet cleared the path for women. Mm. And it's then because the goalposts have not shifted, the same outcome is expected for men and women. And it becomes very shameful for women to come and say, look, I've got children. I've got to do school run. Mm. I've got to do this. Mm. I've got to do that. In mm. addition to this corporate job, mm. an eight to five, yeah, exactly. that shame comes because they're still in the, the goalposts have not shifted. The outcome is still expected from them. Yeah, the patriarchal They still need to, to need to produce at the same level as men. You understand? Mm. I think there comes that sh that shame mm. for women. Yeah. And that's also the thing. It's this idea that you have to make this choice. Yes. That you cannot have it all. Yeah. We have told women that they cannot be a mom and work. Mm -hmm. They must choose. Mm -hmm. And whichever choose, they're wrong. Because exactly. obviously, if you choose to be a career woman, <laughs> oh my God, your biological so clock. Yes. You were supposed to reproduce. Yeah. But if you choose to be a stay-at-home, 
how uh, like don't you want more for your exactly. life aren't you doing it right mm-hmm. and you know what women fall into the same traffics mm-hmm. there there's so much internal mm-hmm. misogyny that we all have for each other mm-hmm. and sometimes even myself mm-hmm. i have to find myself checking myself i'm like wait am i actually saying that because i believe that or am i just falling into yeah. a trapping of what And we judge each other for those choices. And the truth is, everyone says women power, fighting for each other. But the truth is, we don't do that as much as we should Mm -hmm. be. Mm -hmm. And it's because also a system has made it so hard. They pit us against each other. They've set unrealistic standards. And it's exactly what you say. Mm -hmm. The goalpost hasn't shifted. The goals are still the same, which is why I also get really frustrated on like when we talk about equal rights, right? Mm -hmm. And people have these really like horrible takes on feminism. And they're like, no, women are just demanding things and this, this and this. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, we're demanding things that we were never given. And we're asking, we're not... so frustrating when I talk about this. <laughs> because the thing is, at the end of the day, yes, there are biological differences between men and women. Yeah. But I want to be given the opportunity to go out for the same things. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to be vilified if I have to take three days off because my period mm-hmm. is from hell this week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like exactly. biologically, yeah. women need more maternity leave mm-hmm. because guess what? I grew a baby yes. inside of me. Like yes. my body allows me to do that. Mm-hmm. But men should get paternity leave as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If nothing else, to support their wives who just like Absolutely. popped a watermelon out of them. Absolutely. So it's these nuances that I think people are missing in these conversations. People just say women want what men want. I'm like, not exactly. I want to be given the equal opportunity to go out for the same role, for the same job without you saying, oh, but are you expecting to get pregnant anytime soon? Mm -hmm. Because frankly, that's none of your business. Exactly. And I shouldn't be vilified for getting pregnant. Mm -hmm. Like I can still do my job when Mm -hmm. I come in. Mm -hmm. I can still pick up my kids. Mm -hmm. And like... It's yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so this is the difference between equality and equity. Yes. Right? yes. Equity means our respective needs as gender varied people mm. is being met. Mm-hmm. And equality is that we, we all get to go for the same mm. thing. And I think what angers me is that we've been stripped of our choice. Yes. So I was I was witnessing this Facebook spat the other day. I mean, Facebook is endlessly fascinating oh, yeah. with the with the debates that go on there, um, and everyone's like a you know a couch superhero because they're they're all fighting some justice issue from the safety of their yeah. sofa. And there was a woman who was saying she gets up at five in the morning, prepares her whole family's lunches and breakfasts and whatever's, and she washes and irons and she's like a proper 1950s domestic goddess. Mm -hmm. And people were crucifying her in the comment section. And I I don't often comment on things, but I did this time because I thought, geez, someone needs to stick up for this lady. Mm -hmm. And I said the whole whole movement for gender equality was about the choice. Mm -hmm. She Mm -hmm. can choose. Yeah. To be a stay-at-home mother and domestic goddess who makes, you know, brownies twice a week. And I would high-five her for that as much as I would high-five the woman who chooses to go down a career Mm. pathway Mm -hmm. and has to hire someone to, you know, take care of her house Mm. and drive her kids around and whatever. I think we fought for the right to choose. And I find it to be so particularly vicious when we as a woman we become the mouthpieces of patriarchy ourselves when we then dive into another woman and say, Mm -hmm. you know, you are, you are devaluing your own self because you want to be a stay at home mom Mm -hmm. instead of going chicks exercising her right to choose. I high five that because how lucky are those kids (laughs) to have a mom who's on point like that. I have to check myself sometimes Mm -hmm. because sometimes you will still hear women in 2023 sitting around be like, but don't you want to have kids? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Don't you want to think about settling down? And I'm like, 
Oh no, no. we're really asking these questions. Because <laughs> yeah. you have to check yourself because that's still the ideal standard that yep. has been set. Patriarchy. I know we're talking a lot about women's role in the patriarchy, but when mm. I say that the patriarchy is missing everyone around, mm. men are victims to the patriarchy Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. We set unrealistic standards for men as mm-hmm. well. And the same way, like men who have career women as wives, for example, they don't, they're not anything less. I mean, they're just within their rights to stay at home and do school runs Absolutely. and stuff like that. And it's idea, it's looking at the individual and what works for them. Honestly, we shouldn't be involved in anyone's relationship that way. <laughs> they want to do what they do and it works for them, that works for them. Mm. But like the patriarchy is messing everyone around mm. and it's holding everyone back, frankly. Mm. Toxic masculinity yes, plays just huge. as much of a part in the cycle of abuse, right? Mm. We tell men that they have to be strong and they can't cry. We don't give them a space to be vulnerable. So they don't have the tools. We actually haven't given them the tools mm-hmm. to be emotionally sound and intelligent because yes. we have repressed, society has repressed them just as much mm. in a different way. I'm not, like, when we talk about gender-based violence, I understand we're talking about women because mm. they they're so interplayed right like stats shown that in majority women are the survivors they're the victims they are the ones having violence perpetrated against them and in those cases in general men are the perpetrators Mm -hmm. however we can't take aside from the fact that you can just get as financially abusive women or verbally abusive Mm -hmm. women and studies have actually shown that women have far more capability and more are more likely to be psychologically emotionally abusive towards their partners Mm -hmm. but it then again comes down to we don't believe abuse if it's not violence yeah mm. and of course so the stigma and shame for men, men is because even the worse. patriarchal narrative says like how can you let a woman abuse you yes you're supposed to be men the strong, can't get raped tough one mm-hmm. exactly mm. and then for them to go and say particularly when you don't have a blue eye to show for it mm. right how do you describe what is happening to you psychologically mm. and emotionally without having other men laugh you out of the room and that I think is such an overwhelming fear for men. How does a 16-year-old boy admit that his teacher took advantage mm-hmm. of him without his friends being like, oh, you yes. scored the hot young teacher at yeah. school. Like, <laughs> and that's the conversations we're having. Mm-hmm. For men, sex is seen as this great thing that you can't say no to. And Absolutely. why would you say no yeah, to? And it's, it's, you're supposed to be, it's a sense of achievement. You yes. know, the more notches you have in your belt, the cooler you are. Like the Which is such a double standard because <laughs> women are supposed to be chased forever and yes. men are supposed to be losing that V-card as soon as possible. <laughs> Possible. And I'm like, but who are they losing it to? Like, yeah. look at your exactly. logic. Yeah, they're not. It's not one girl that everyone's passing around. Like, <laughs> like some like a, like age-appropriate widow that is being passed around. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because like, like it's like honestly, when you boil down to like rational and logic, a lot of these standards that we set make sense to no one. Mm. So. Like, that's why we say we, we're constantly perpetuating something that we don't even, like, get. Yeah, exactly. And it hurts everybody. There's no mm, winner. There is no, no winner. winner. I mean, not realizing yeah. that the patriarchal system, everybody's trapped. I mean, women, children, men, yeah. mm. LGBTIQA+. Plus, exactly. Everybody Everyone's just trapped. is just trapped in the system. And, and the trapping shows up differently for yeah. men mm, and women. Exactly. So men have got their set of pain points that Mm. that patriarchy has gifted them Mm -hmm. and women have our set of pain points and no one is winning Mm. and the kids in the middle are getting messed up and now we've got intergenerational trauma with kids in the middle. I want to ask a question to both of you around this idea of resilience. So I've been playing with this in my head for a long while and resilience I feel like it used to mean one thing and now it's starting to mean something else. 
and this kind of distorted meaning of it, which really disturbs me. And this is just me theorizing, right? My own <laughs> sense of what's happening in our sector. Does resilience sound to the two of you like the system is saying, please come up with more creative, more innovative ways of just absorbing intolerable shit that shouldn't mm. exist? Because mm. I'm feeling like resilience is no longer being framed as this healthy way of having some, you know, mental toughness and mm. bounce back. I hate bounce back mm-hmm. because it's it's such a very strange what does bounce back mean? Yeah. You know, your life cannot go back to how it was mm. before. Mm-hmm. And should you be the same person sh- after exactly. something happens you to you? Sh- you? And you shouldn't. You and you shouldn't can't. It I think you. more importantly, it's you can't, you can't be the same person after something happens I to you. I agree so much. So I'm just feeling like there's, there used to be this healthy view of resilience. And now it's just become keep sucking up the mm. crap that we're feeding you. Do it with a smile on your face. Mm. Do it until you combust. And don't complain about it because mm-hmm. then we're just going to tell you you're weak. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have any kind of, you know, psychological metal. You're just a victim. You're just a victim. And it becomes another entry point into devaluing. Yeah. Right. And, and, and it reminds me of my mother-in-law told me this story. She and her husband worked at the same company. And so it's time for increases. And the boss calls the husband in and, you know, there's a nice big smile on his face when he comes out of the office. He's got an, an increase. And then the boss calls my mother-in-law in and says to her, you know, you do really good work. We're very proud of you. You make such a great contribution to the organization. But, you know, you're going to go and have babies any minute now. So we gave your increase to your husband. <gasps> oh, my. <laughs> True story. This is my, my husband's mom. Oh. True story. And I just sat there going, what? Yeah. yeah, it's this idea that just because I can take something doesn't mean I should or have mm. to. Like, just, th- and I think that's what people don't understand. I'm like, yes, I'm strong. Yes, I can, in quotes, bounce back. Something happened to me and I'm moving forward. But the thing is, just because I can, just because I have the capacity to do all those things to doesn't mean mm. I have to endure it. Mm. Exactly. Absolutely. Or I should endure it. Yeah. It, sh- it shouldn't exist, in fact. Those exactly. should not exist. And instead of taking or, or dismantling the system that enables those things to exist, we're being told just keep sucking it up. Mm. So suck, suck up the gender inequality in the workplace and your husband will get the increase you deserve <laughs> because you're going to go have babies anyway. As a now. family, you're fine, aren't you? Exactly. And you're like, but actually... Huh? Exactly. Where's because where's my mine. reward and exactly. my work? So you're just lumped in under his value. Yeah. You don't have value, but on it's your also own. someone else making that decision for you. Mm-hmm. Because I'm like, how do you know I want to have kids? Mm-hmm. Yeah, making what, this assumption. Yeah, and why is my personal family life coming into a work conversation exactly. at all? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you're not entitled to that. I think it's also exactly. this idea of boundaries. Mm. I'm like, you're not entitled to that information about me or what I want or how it's going to play out. You shouldn't be entitled to understand my family structure. How do you know that he's not going to take that increase and run away with it? Like, it's <laughs> <laughs> like piggybacking exactly. on this entire story. I know, exactly. but like. But it's the yeah. same idea of the Lobola Dari where it doesn't matter. They, they're going to deliberate on your value. You have no value. <laughs> Somebody else and determines like, why that is a brother and an uncle house. getting exactly. money for me finishing my master's exactly. degree? Let's exactly. start there. Yeah, like what does that yeah. mean? Yeah. 
So my, my understanding, coming back, Tracy, to your question of resilience, I've been pondering on this question. What it sounds like to me is like, it's a shit show, deal with it. Mm. But whose responsibility, in my mind, I'm asking myself, whose responsibility is it to deal with a shit show? Mm. Is it mine? Is it everybody else in the sector? Is it my perpetrator? Whose responsibility is it to deal with the shit show? And I think I'm kind of stuck on that mm. <laughs> question, yeah. And it's how we're choosing mm. to respond yeah. to it, right? Yes. I think everyone has this idea of that it's not me, mm-hmm. right? And someone pe- people don't really take into account all the microaggressions that go with it. But it's how are we actively actually working on changing the system? And I think what the most frustrating part of our sector is, I, as myself, as someone who works at Tears or in this thing, I can do everything right for my client. Mm -hmm. I can show them where to go. I can tell them exactly what it would look like. I can do everything. But once they report it to the police, I can't do more than that. Mm -hmm. I can't make a police officer investigate this case to the best of his ability. The same way I can't make a prosecutor prosecute something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, And that's the same thing. It's us knowing our limits. I had a case, something happened, police investigated, perfect. But once a police officer compiles their docket and submits it to court, they actually don't have any further information yeah. for you, mm-hmm. for the client. They can't do anything more until it goes to court. And once that prosecutor gets that little docket, that little file on their desk, they mm-hmm. can just as easily go, precedent says this won't, no, won't happen. Not a win yeah. for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, and then where does that leave my client? Exactly. You haven't provided with her with healing because the government doesn't have enough re- resources or people mm-hmm. or whatever excuse they're making mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. You did everything right with the police. Mm-hmm. And then she's like, but what about me now? Mm. Mm. And that's what it thinks. It's like, we have to shift the big picture. We understand that there is a greater system that we need to change. But like me as an individual, I'm doing my best. (laughs) But I can't change an entire function. Mm -hmm. And it's getting people on board to do that. Mm. Absolutely. South Africa has some of the most inclusive and comprehensive legislation in the world Mm -hmm. we have an amazing domestic violence act that is so comprehensive that you can go technically report someone for financial abuse and that can be a proper domestic violence criminal offensive charge but do we see it get done in practice do we see police officers take those um, cases seriously do we see lawyers prosecute as they should and that's what's frustrating Mm -hmm. we have such an inclusive constitution and Especially when you look at countries like America, who is basically taking like 12 steps back in like reproductive health rights. Mm -hmm. But where am I going for an abortion? Mm -hmm. Me as someone who has medical aid, for example, and I'm within my timeframes of the government, I can just as easily go to a private hospital, Mm -hmm. what my medical aid covers, get it done. Mm -hmm. But a 12 year old or a 16 year old who didn't know that they were pregnant walks into a government clinic where a very stringent nurse looks at her and says, you shouldn't have been having sex in the first place. Now this is the consequences. I'm like, how do you know I was having sex? Maybe I was raped. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. if I was raped, then you're still going to tell me about bringing the child in and it's not the child's fault. I'm like, but what about me? And that's Mm. the thing. We're not actually taking things into consideration. Mm. We're not. The systems are failing people over and over again. End of the day, we can sit and talk about it, yeah. but there's only so much we can we do. Can do. Yeah. Yes, that is what's frustrating to me. So it's important that we start working with each other and realize that mm. for this to end, we all have to be gatekeepers mm. from the mm. victim right through to the upper mm. of society of our strata. Mm. Recognizing that, yeah. So if we come back to, because I mean we've we've gone a little bit all over the place, but I think <laughs> I think it's it's so intersectional, right? So all of these things have got really valid parts in a conversation around mental health 
or mental wellness or both. If you mash them together, you can say mental wealth because I'm tempted to do that all the time. <laughs> um, and, and gender-based violence. So I just want to kind of like put it in a nutshell. Not only does gender-based violence cause mental health issues because victims have been traumatized and then the system fails them repeatedly on so many levels. They're often not believed, rejected by family members, dependent on the abuser. Mm. So there's so many complexities around that that can really break down the good mental health of any person. And I find that the people who, who take the legal route need to really dig deep for reserves, for resilience, mm. because you will find that the system can hurt you more than yeah. what the perpetrator did. And mm. and now you've got to go and deal with that on top of the thing that you're in the system for. So it's, it's really deep diving to find your resilience. Mm. But then also people who have not resolved, and not only gender-based violence, but I think all traumas, right? People have not resolved those can become perpetrators themselves of violence within the home, mm-hmm. of not bringing peace into their spaces, of creating toxic relationships mm-hmm. in their workplaces, of being volatile. So I'm, I'm seeing like this real circle of mental wellness and mm-hmm. how it it's a cycle. Mm-hmm. It's a cycle in and of itself. It's a cycle that runs within GBV, which is its its own cycle mm. so the the cycle so is in the cycle the cycle of abuse the cycle of trauma cycle of response exactly the, the, the stuck in a rut essentially mm. and so i think and i think that's probably my in a nutshell takeaway mm. hazel what did you what did you walk away with from this conversation what is your nutshell i think i still come back to language yeah mm. There's a statement that Nelson Mandela said, which I love, was my favorite quote, that you speak to a man in a language he understands. He understands. But if you speak to a man in his own language, it goes to his heart. Mm. And I think we need to have a language for mental health and wellness that permeates deep into people's hearts. I think you mentioned it, Caviar, um, that how do you even explain depression? But we can feel it, but we can't explain it. Mm. We need to have a language for it that permeates deep into our hearts. Mm. I think that's what I've taken away. We don't have a language, and that's something that we need to build. And Mm. perhaps from there, a lot of the ills, a lot of the situations that we find ourselves in as a society might come start start, Mm. um, reducing and coming down. And a lot of the stigma mm. to be reduced yes, because absolutely. we're giving language to things that only exist in pockets of cultural yes. beliefs and mm. cultural practices. And, and metaphors. And, and, you know, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so how do we create, yeah, that's homework. How do we go and create a language mm. or platforms to engage in cross-cultural dialogues where we can negotiate the new language, mm. you know, as a country mm. and not have, have one language group shove the language mm. onto the other. How Absolutely. do we negotiate that in the middle there? Mm. Because I think there are some African expressions that capture things mm. in English that mm. I, that I don't have English for. Mm. And then when they're explained to me, which again is, is like, how do you translate something without losing the heart mm. meaning of it? Yes. Yeah. But there are just some expressions in, in vernacular indigenous languages mm. that, that are, there is no English There's for. There's no English for you. And it just is it's much more effective. Mm. So how do we borrow from 
each other's languages, mm, um, the 11 mm. or so languages, yeah, and create a new language that speaks to all of our cultures. Absolutely. And that, I think, would speak to reducing stigma. Mm-hmm. It would speak to um, starting to unpack the shame stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm. Awareness, right? yeah. It would, mm. it would give the language to the patriarchy has hurt all sides. Mm-hmm. There's no winner in it. Mm-hmm. Kavya, what's your takeaway or last comments? <laughs> I think for me, it boils down to accessibility and knowledge. Mm-hmm. These are not topics that we actually talk about. Or when we talk about it, we don't really, we talk around it. Yeah, We sanitize, we diminish, we try to sugarcoat stuff. If we can't acknowledge how serious this is, we're never going to change anything. Mm. If we keep talking around these points and we should like just touch on little aspects nothing's ever going to happen so i always really value these kind of conversations because the only way you can change someone's perspective or broaden a lens is by talking about it mm-hmm. you can you can introduce new perspectives you know what have a fight with someone it's fine <laughs> share opinions but just walk away from those instances knowing i've learned something mm-hmm. if nothing else i've learned your opinion right mm-hmm. i don't have to take anything with that but i know that that is an opinion that exists out there in the yeah. world And it's accessing that information and giving the people the right to choose. Mm -hmm. Give them the information so then they can choose what they want to do. Absolutely. And I think that's really important. Mm. Yeah, I think people don't know what they don't know. Mm. What their options are. Exactly. And if you if you make an assumption that and and I mean I prefer to live this way, make the (laughs) assumption that human beings are fundamentally good Mm. and everyone is fundamentally doing the best they can with what they know. If we want better outcomes, we have to improve the knowledge bases mm. that people are coming from. Exactly. Because what they know is potentially the limiting factor. So mm. give them more to know and hope and trust that that out of being good human beings, they do better with that new knowledge. Absolutely. Sure, ladies, this was a very intense and I think very rich conversation. Mm. Thank you so much for being here with me. I've enjoyed, I mean, we even managed to giggle in between having, <laughs> uh, but I mean, it's it's because these things are so, they're so real. They're so mm, real to us. Absolutely. And we live in it and we work in it and we're women in the world. So it's not like yeah. we ever get away. You know, you don't, <laughs> yeah. you don't knock off being a woman at five o'clock yeah. and then go home mm-hmm. gender neutral. We, we live in it. We work in it. We're helping people in the space. And so it, it's really profound to have mm. had your insights into this today so thanks cover clinical psychologist <laughs> and and proud representative of tears foundation yes, representative. thank you so much <laughs> and then hazel hazel is the editor of the collective action magazine and my esteemed colleague it was great to have you both thank you so much thank Go you well. thank, thank you, you for having thank us you, yes. heal your mind podcast with tracy cotson is hosted by mental wellness initiative and supported by the ford foundation